Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning. Sunday morning, 9 a.m. <laughs> I like how awake you guys are. Hoping it'll rub off on me. Um, I need to acknowledge first that uh, the air conditioning is broken. So I'll be your canary if I just pass out. It's too hot. You guys got to go. Okay. JC, you can pick me up. and Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to just uh, study the word of God and we're going to bear whatever suffering we need to if it gets a little too hot. Are you guys up for that? Okay. If you're not, leave now. Open your Bibles to Acts 28 and we're going to read the first 16 verses together. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hands. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Amen? So we're, we're, we're approaching the end of the book of Acts. Next week, uh, Zach is going to finish up the book. It ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger, so I'll let Zach handle that. And, and I'm going to do some other stuff this weekend as we study the verses leading up to Paul's arrival in Rome. Has it been a blessing to study through the book of Acts? It has been for me. It's been a, been a joy to work through this book with you along with um, Mike and Zach and the other people who have preached. I hope that it's a book that's formed us as a church, that's made us more aware of what it means to be the people of God, made us more aware of the good news of Jesus Christ, and made us more aware of the mission that we're called to. So I just want to say it's been a joy. I've enjoyed it. Now, we are at the final stages of Paul's ministry. 
Now, Acts is divided sort of into two halves. The first half is the apostles in Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding area, and they preach the word of God, and the Spirit of God comes down, and people who are Jewish come to faith in a Jewish Messiah through the preaching of some of Jesus' disciples and other early followers of Jesus. Then in chapter 9, Paul becomes a Christian. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then he goes out on his missionary journeys where he preaches the gospel, not primarily to Jews, but to Gentiles, people who don't know about Moses or Abraham, who haven't read the Old Testament, who have probably never been to temple, don't go inside synagogues. And what we see happen in Acts is these people who aren't Jewish put their faith in a Jewish Messiah. So Paul goes on three missionary trips. And at the end, he returns to Jerusalem where he's arrested and there's a series of trials and eventually he's put on a boat that that goes to Rome. And we know when Paul gets on boats, boats sink. So he's on his way to Malta. The boat sinks and the guards are going to kill all the prisoners on the boat. But one of them takes pity and says to all the prisoners, jump off the boat, swim ashore or float to shore, whatever you need to do. And they slowly make their way there, and 276 people show up on the banks of this island. Now, what I want to point out real quickly is it has been a long journey for Paul. (laughs) It's been a really long journey. Not just like with the shipwreck, right? He's been beaten, he's been stoned, he's been imprisoned, he's been mistreated. We know he's gone without food and money for long periods of time. It has not been an easy trip. We have to understand why Paul would live the sort of life that he did. How many of you guys go on long drives? Anyone? If you're American, you typically go on long drives. I go to Sacramento on a regular basis. My parents live up in Sacramento. And I want my grandchildren to know my parents. So we pack our kids into our car and we drive up there. And we know how to do it at this point. We're pros. I've made the trip so many times. I know how to get them in the car and what like Toy Story movie to put on. It's great. It's a miracle. They got headphones. My wife and I can listen to like a book on tape. And we've got coffees, and we drive up there, and it's a nice drive. But if you've never like, done like long car rides with children, you know that things can like, go sideways, right? I know where every clean bathroom is between here and Sacramento. Every McDonald's, every McDonald's is a play place. Not every long drive is an easy drive. And, and we have a lot of things that make it easier, right? It could be way more difficult. We could have a smaller car. We could have no radio and no little movie to show them. We could be in traffic the entire time. Traffic, right? Whew. Traffic is one of the, the modern means of sanctification. <laughs> Here's the point. I would make that long drive, no matter how difficult it was, because I know what's waiting at the end. I know that my parents will be there and they love my grandchildren and they'll get to see my grandchildren. So I am destination minded. I have the future in mind as I make that trip. I would do it Oregon Trail style if I had to. I want to get up so that my grandkids can see or my kids can see my parents. Paul has the destination in mind. He is formed by the end that he knows about. Where is Paul's destination? Rome? No, it's not Rome. It's something else. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. I was hoping you guys would all say Rome. You're like, no. And then you'd be like, oh, no, it's not Rome. And then I'd move on. You guys with me? But bear with me. Paul has a different destination in mind. He's had a long journey. He's had a shipwreck. He's going to get bit by a snake in a little bit here. Finally, he's going to make it to the port city of Rome, and he's going to arrive in Rome. It's a long trip. 
And when he gets to Rome, in some ways it seems like this great opportunity, but in other ways it's difficult. He's not showing up to meet people who love him necessarily. He's going there because he's going to stand trial. And most historians, although we can't be sure of this, think that Paul probably died in Rome. Here's what's so great about Paul, though. Not only do we get the narrative of his life in Acts, we also get letters that he wrote to various churches throughout his ministry. I, I want to just peek inside one of these letters to see how Paul is considering his circumstances as he's in prison or in house arrest awaiting trial in Rome after a very long, arduous, difficult journey. He says this to the church at Philippi. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, listen, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul knows where he is sitting in the story of God. He's aware of his position. His present circumstances are formed both by his future hope and his memory, his knowledge of what God has already done. I think this is the key to living as Christians. People who are orientated around the hope that is to come and the hope that God has already made possible in Jesus Christ. There's this Dutch theologian, his name is Herman Bobink. And the tagline for his theology, or the thing that he says on a regular basis is this, Grace renews nature. Grace renews nature. He's talking on a global scale, on an institutional scale, at a universal scale, and he's also talking on the scale of individual human hearts. Grace renews nature. Paul has a hope. What is that hope? I want to tell you what that hope is. If you already know, that's okay. You can hear it again. If you don't know, listen. Christians believe this. The world was created by a righteous, holy, perfect God. This God who is good, and he spoke creation into existence. He told the sun to shine, and it shined. He told the mountains to rise, and they rose. He told all of the vegetables and plants of the field to grow in the way they're supposed to grow and bear fruits in their own kind, and they did the thing that God told them to do. He told animals to bear other animals, and they did that. He told everything to be arranged in the way that he had designed, and they all obeyed God. Every single component of creation came into existence and was ordered by the voice of this righteous, good, perfect God. And at the end of this creation cycle, God creates humankind. He creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in God's image they bear his image to the rest of creation. They act as rulers over creation. And while everything else that God created obeyed the Lord, Adam and Eve did not. They chose their own way. They didn't do the thing that God had told them to do. They rebelled against God. And when they did that, sin entered into the world. All forms of wickedness 
all the forms of injustice and tragedy and calamity that we see today came into the world at that point. That's like the bad news. Human beings are in rebellion against a creator. And they deserve, they deserve the judgment that that creator will send on them. But God is good and God is righteous and God is perfect, so he doesn't sit by. He doesn't sit by. He doesn't do nothing. He doesn't abandon his creation. Instead, he sends his son at the appointed time. What's his name? Jesus appears on the scene. He lives a sinless life in our place and dies a humiliating death in our place. So that grace might renew nature. So that at the individual level, your hearts might turn in repentance to God and you can be saved. So at the institutional level, all the corruption and political problems we see today might be resolved by the one true king. There is a future world. The Bible calls it the new heaven and the new earth. That is the world that everyone longs for. Where there's justice and where there is peace. Paul believes all of that. Paul believes all of that. So then his present circumstances, based on what God has already done, and what he is certain God will bring about in the future, are shaped. He understands where he is in God's story. He also understands that Rome is just a stop along the way. Rome's not the actual destination. He has a new life, he has a new heart, he has a new mission, and he is meant for new creation. Amen? So for us, as we examine Paul, as we think about what he does in these few passages, it would be unhelpful for us to say, just be like Paul. It would be helpful for us to to say, what does Paul believe about the world that empowers him and enables him to live the way that he does? So I think three things. I'm going to tell them to you now, but but relax. I'm going to come back to all three of them, okay? So usually I hear pages flapping now, just relax. All right, first, he sees protection instead of punishment. Protection instead of punishment. Two, he is a witness amidst weariness. And three, we see community producing courage. Read with me again verses one through six. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up (laughs) or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Okay, so Paul has just been on a ship that's broken apart, that's sunk, and they've all made their way to dry ground. They are wet, they're cold, they're tired. In many regards, they are not in a super happy condition. And they're met by the natives of the island. 
Now, some of your Bibles probably say natives, and some of your Bibles probably say barbarians. Anybody have barbarians in their Bibles? Anybody here? Zero people? Oh, one guy. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for saving me, bud. <laughs> Appreciate that. The Greek word is barbaros, and it's an onomatopoeia. Do you guys know what an onomatopoeia is? It's like a word that's meant to sound like the thing it is, like slap or, or bang or crash. You guys with me? Okay, so here's what the Greeks, the Greeks really, really liked their language and their culture. And when they would interact with people of other cultures who spoke other languages, their language, the other people's language, sounded to the Greeks like someone just saying bar, 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 bar. So like, what do we call these people? Barbarians is what we'll call them. So it's a word they use to refer to people that didn't speak Greek. So when we see the natives, we shouldn't assume that it's like a hunter-gatherer tribe. It's just a people who don't speak the same language that Paul speaks. In fact, they've shown hospitality to Paul and the other people who are there. They've built this big fire. There's 276 people there that are ready to be warmed by this fire. Paul, who I assume is chained to the other guy at this point, is walking around gathering sticks to throw on the fire to contribute to this hospitality. And as he picks up one of the bundles of sticks... He picks up a snake, and the snake is warmed by the heat of the fire, and it bites him. It fastens to his hand. It's this big surprise. The natives who are there, they know the island. They know what sort of animals are dangerous. They know to always be looking out for this particular snake. So they see this snake bite Paul, and they're like, oh, that guy's done. That snake kills people. He is definitely going to die, which is ironic. Paul has just survived all kinds of terrible things over the course of many decades, and he gets taken down by a snake bite. That would be very ironic. It's like someone swimming to Catalina and then all the way back and then drowning in the shower, right? That's, that's what it's like. So they see Paul get bitten by this snake and then they immediate make, immediately make this assumption about him. They say justice has not permitted him to escape. He made it through the ocean, but because clearly he must be some sort of murderer or something, the gods have ensured that he's going to pay for the thing that he did wrong. Now, the word there for justice, hopefully in your Bibles, was capitalized. It's a name. It's a reference to the goddess DK, the goddess of justice. And she was like this cosmic tattletale. If people had done something wrong and had not suffered their due consequences, she would go tell that to the more powerful gods, and they would make sure whoever it was who had escaped justice would actually receive justice. So the assumption is, Paul has made it through the waves, and he was a murderer. He was a prisoner on a boat, and somehow the weather, the waves, the storm didn't kill him. Somehow he made it through. But don't worry. The gods have sent a snake to ensure that Paul pays for his past actions. And then what happens? <laughs> Nothing. So you imagine all the, all the people there like are just staring at Paul. This says they're waiting for him to swell up or fall over and die. <laughs> you imagine Paul's got the snake on. It's going to be bad if you get bit by a snake and everyone stops and looks at you. And you're like, is this bad? Yeah, it's bad. He lives. And when he lives, the people who are there make the opposite assumption. Oh, he lived. Therefore, he must be a God not deserving of condemnation. They have these extreme reactions between something tragic has happened to him. So it must be because, it must be because he's done something wrong. And, oh, he was saved from this tragedy. He now has good circumstances, so he must have not done something wrong. They have a limited capacity to understand suffering in the world. Tragedy. The way they process bad things happening is difficult because their theology is thin. 
Today as Christians, I think that we do this a lot. Now, here's the thing. I think sometimes suffering can be the result of your sin. And I think sometimes good circumstances can be the result of your obedience. I do not always think that is the case. I don't think that's the primary way that the New Testament and the Bible as a whole talks about suffering. I don't think that's a way of thinking about suffering that lifts high the name of Jesus and believes in the power of the gospel. How do Christians respond when bad things happen to them? I think we do two things that are bad often. One is we become angry at the suffering, at the tragedy, at the misfortune or whatever because we don't believe that we deserve it or we are afraid because we think that we do. These two extremes, neither of which should be the way that Christians truly process suffering. How many of you remember Steve Liscomb? Anybody here? Steve was a believer and a member of our church for many, many years. He was a joyful guy. And a couple years ago, he passed away from cancer. And he had many, many years where he suffered from cancer. And he would have times in the hospital. And when he was in the hospital, various elders and pastors would go visit him. And I, I visited him one time in the hospital. And he's in a hospital bed. He's had cancer for many, many years now. The prognosis is not good. And here's what he says to me about his time, about his situation. He says, Andrew, I am thankful for every single day that God has given me. They're all gifts because I don't deserve any of them. That is a powerful way to view his circumstances. It is rooted in future hope. It's grounded in what Jesus did at the cross. He doesn't see punishment everywhere he looks. He doesn't see punishment everywhere he looks. He sees protection. His default is not to focus on the things that have gone poorly, but to remember what it is that God has already done and what he believes God will do. Steve believed in a new heaven and a new earth where there would be no cancer. For those of you here today suffering, we believe that. We believe that. Not in some vague sense, not in some general sense, but specifically because what God achieved at Jesus at the cross was irreversible. Grace renews nature. So Paul gets bit by the snake. It's a snake that by all natural accounts should kill him, and he just shakes the snake off. Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain. Amen? Secondly, he's a witness amidst weariness. Read again with me, beginning in verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul's just been bitten by a snake. He gets invited into the house of the chief man, probably the chief official of the island, and they experience hospitality even though they are wearied. Paul, as I've said already, has had a really long trip getting here. I've not been on a single shipwreck. Has anybody here been on a shipwreck? Anybody been on three 
And then anybody been on three shipwrecks and after the last one gotten bitten by a snake? If you have, I want to hear afterwards. It's been a long road for Paul. It's been a long road for Paul. He's wet, he's cold, he's tired. He had a fire, but then things went sideways with the snake. He gets invited into this house and we see Paul continue to act as a witness and be faithful in this house. I want us to like really like get a picture of where Paul is at. Um, who's done like a, like a 10 hour flight? Anybody ever done like a 10 hour flight? All right, they're fun, right? They're good. So the best part of vacation is the flying. My wife and I used to do lots of um, 10-hour flights um, because we lived in a different country, so we'd fly back and forth, and we had kids that we'd bring onto the flight. So if you have kids and you get on a long flight, you pick your kids up and you walk on the flight, you can just feel the hate from everyone as you walk on with this, like, six-month-old. It's hard to get through. You, you work really hard to keep everyone calm. You're on this flight. You're going to make it. You're trying to, like, exhaust every resource you have to make it to the very end of the flight. And then you land, right? After 10 hours, you've had a security line. You've had, like, eight boarding groups. you like, got to wait and put your bag in the right spot. And then your bag can't be by your seat. So you're kind of stressed about that the whole flight. And then you, you land. And then, and then when you land, it's over, right? No. Oh, my goodness. No. You get taxied in, right, which is as long as the flight. Uh, right? And then you get connected to the gate. And then it's over, right? No, no, it's not over. What is everyone sitting down looking at once you get to the gate? That fastened seatbelt light, right? It's, it's like, the, like, the, like the gun that goes off at the beginning of races. Everyone's waiting. That light goes off, civilization collapses. <laughs> right? Every man for himself. Whatever charity you had on the flight, trying to be nice to the person who's got a kid or doing the best you can to keep your kids from crying, it goes out the door. Light goes off and it's go time, right? I, me too. I'm ready, right? I'm sitting in a seat. My wife's in the center seat, and there's a stranger in the window seat. The light goes off, and he stands up, and I'm like, where are you going? Where are you? What is your plan? There's, there's, there's no plan. Are you going to walk over us? And he's thinking, if I have to, I will. Right? At the, like, this is like the very, very, very end of the journey, and Charity is exhausted at this point. Whatever amount of love you had in your heart for other people, is, it's just like the final fumes of the gas tank, right? You're barely, barely able to make it. I feel my own sin more acutely in these moments than almost any other time. I feel it. Paul has had a much, much, much longer, more difficult journey. He's at the very, very, very end of this many decades of ministry. And the last few months have not gone particularly well in worldly regards, and then, as he arrives in the house of this official, you think, ah, a moment of respite. He can have a nap. He can, he can eat a meal. Maybe get a Band-Aid for the fact that the snake just bought him. And there's, there's this sick man in the house. So Paul goes down to where the sick man is. And what does he do? He heals him. And, and what does he do to heal him? He prays and he lays his hands on him. He prays and he lays his hands on him. The way that Paul heals him is important. Remember, he got bit by the snake. Snake falls off. Paul doesn't die. And the people who are there, what, do they, what assumption do they make about Paul? That he's a god. Can you imagine if he had gone down and just started healing people without praying? That would reinforce their view of Paul. Paul's careful. He prays to indicate to the people who are there that the power for healing is not something that Paul naturally possesses. It's a reminder that his mission is not about him. It's a reminder that his weariness is not about him. It's a reminder that the resources that he has to continue in his mission are not naturally his. They are gifted to him. 
It's not that Paul's just this super strong guy. I think in some senses he is, but that really is not the point. The point is that God is at work and Paul is permitted and blessed to be like engaged in the work that God is doing. Now, this is the only time that I can think of in the entire book of Acts where we see Paul have a healing ministry and not a preaching ministry. You'll notice that it doesn't explicitly say that he preached the gospel and healed. It just says that he healed. And although I don't think we can be sure that he preached in these circumstances, I think it's extremely likely that his healing ministry was accompanied by or built on his preaching ministry. Here's why. Everywhere that Paul goes, he talks about Jesus. Everywhere that Paul goes, he talks about Jesus. He's the guy that stops you in line at the DMV to tell you about Jesus. He's that guy. He goes to Lystra and he preaches the gospel and they stone him and he doesn't stop. He walks right back into the city. He's on trial before all these powerful officials that have power over his life. And at the very end, you might remember Herod Agrippa is there and Paul's preaching the gospel and Herod leans in and he says to Paul, are you trying to convert me? And Paul's like, yeah, yeah, I am. It was the forefront of Paul's mind. It's what his mission is built on. It's the thing he was sent out to do. So I think we should have every expectation that the three months that he spent on Malta were three months where he both healed and preached. Because it would be meaningless to heal this particular guy's father of sickness and not tell him about his sin. That would be a tragedy. That would be worthless. It doesn't help anyone if you give them bread and you don't tell them about the bread of life. Do you, you hear what I'm saying? So then, it appears to be the case that Paul has made many converts on the island because the end of his time there, they gather all their resources together and they fill his ship with everything he needs. This random, unintentional stop in Malta became a new missionary base for Paul, I believe. And then he's sent off on a boat to where? Oh, Rome, almost there, right? Taxiing to the gate, to Rome. I think when we get to this section, we see community producing courage. Go back with me uh, to verse 11, real quickly. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. It says that Paul, both in the port city of Puteoli and on the way to Rome, was met by brothers. Now, some of your Bibles might have said believers, and I think that's the right sense of the word. Paul is meeting other people who have the same belief in what Jesus has done at the cross and have the same hope for what Jesus will bring about when he returns. People that are renewed in the same way that he is, that are formed in the same way that he is. And in seeing them, he's encouraged. And in seeing these people, he is encouraged. Paul's wanted to go to Rome for a long time now. 
He says to them in his letter to the Romans that he wants to go there. Throughout Acts, he's been told that he's going to go there. He has wanted to preach the gospel in Rome and see the believers who live there. And so now he's beginning to see that. And it says that he took courage. I want to show you real quickly a quote from John Calvin. Is that okay? Thank you. It's always amazing to me. I, I can read like dozens of modern commentaries, guys with all the things that are afforded to someone living today with computers and search engines. And then I can read Calvin, and he's just sitting there in the 1500s and just nailing it over and over and over again. No computer, no Wi-Fi, no anything. He says this, and there is no cause why we should marvel that Paul was emboldened at this present when he saw the brethren. Because he did hope that, his, that the confession of his faith would yield no small fruit. For so often as God showeth his servants any fruit of their labor, he doth, as it were, prick them forward with a goad, that they may proceed more courageously in their work. Okay, so I know the language is a little stuffy. Calvin's essentially saying this. God is showing Paul the fruit of Paul's earlier labor. And that's what gives Paul courage. But what that labor was is important. Paul wrote perhaps his most famous letter to the church in Rome. He had not yet been there. And for a variety of historical reasons, the church in Rome was divided. It was in trouble. There was disunity between the Gentiles and the Jews. And he writes them a letter, and part of what he's doing in this letter is seeking to cause them, by one way or another, to reconcile. But what he writes to them, what he writes to them is not the sort of encouragement we might expect. When my kids fight with each other, I'm like, are you say sorry, you say sorry, and then just everything needs to be fine. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't give them resources for like how to interact with each other well. He doesn't teach them how to like have discussions charitably. Instead, what he does is he offers them perhaps the most succinct and thorough description of the good news of Jesus Christ in the entire New Testament. He begins in chapter 1 and 2 in the beginning of 3 by explaining to them the position of humankind, a people in need of a Savior because they are sinners. He describes to them the tragic state of the very people who bear the image of God. And in 321, he says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is telling the Romans about the common hope that they share. And he believes that that will form them and that that will unify them and that that will reconcile them. And now at the very end of his time in ministry, as he's approaching the city of Rome, as I'm sure in many ways he is discouraged, God reminds him, of the power of the gospel, of what it's already done in the lives of those to whom he's ministered. He shows them other people formed in the same way. These Christians 
They come from Rome out to meet Paul as he's being led by guards because of his Christian faith to Rome. They go tens of miles out to meet him. They follow him in procession back to Rome. This would not have been safe for Christians to do. Paul's reminded of where he is in the story, that Rome is not the destination, that the goal is not how good he is or how great he is or how faithful he is, that the whole point is to rest and take assurance in the faithfulness of God who has already acted decisively, decisively in our favor. The whole reason for Paul's ability to act this way is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Early in Acts, Peter is preaching and he says, all who call on the name of Jesus might be saved. Paul is able, Paul is empowered or formed to do the sorts of things that he's doing because Jesus has already taken Paul's place. Paul can see protection because Jesus bore his punishment. Paul can be a witness because Jesus was wearied on the way to the cross with whips and with nails and with a crown of thorns. Paul can be encouraged by his community because Jesus was before him cast out of the city, abandoned by his followers, nailed onto a cross. And we hear Jesus say at the very end, right before his death, these words, Allahi, Allahi, Lamak Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was a man of sorrow so we could be a people of joy. He died so that we might live. It would be easy to say, let's read about Paul and follow his example. I think there's some truth there. But I, I'd much rather say this. Let's believe the same thing that Paul believed. Let's rest in the assurance of salvation bought through the power of Jesus and hope for the world that Paul believes is coming. We believe this, grace renews nature in our hearts and in our society. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning, for the riches that you have sovereignly given to us in your word. We thank you for the examples of people like Paul, but more importantly, we thank you for the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I pray we be a community formed by your grace, renewed by your grace, one that's so excited about the unmerited favor that you've given to us because of Jesus that we tell other people about it. that we as a church would be encouraged by the words of Acts. That we would see in the book of Acts a beautiful picture of what it means to be the people of God. And that we would seek to be that same people. For all these things, in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.